Coming to you from Koreatown, Los Angeles, California, though connecting today to a guest in Palm Springs, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm speaking today with Todd Goldberg, author of novels like Fake Liar Cheat, Living Dead Girl, a few novels based on the television series Burn Notice, books of short stories like Simplify, and a, ta- a, a book of tales of stories of yeah, let's call let's call them what the title calls them. Other resort cities. He's also the co-host of the book. I was trying to be a little more clever, but I gave up. He's co-host of the Literary Disco podcast as well, and this is going to be very relevant to our conversation. He's the author of the guidebook Hungry, Thirsty, Las Vegas. Oh God! New novel. I forgot I wrote that book. Jesus. Yeah. Well, you 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 put it on your website. That's how I found out about it. It's going to be relevant okay. because the novel, his new novel, is Gangsterland. It's a tale of, it's a, it's a mob tale set in the unlikely location of the suburban Jewish community of Summerlin in Las Vegas. Oh, Summerlin's not all Jewish, but it's in the Jewish part of the Las Vegas suburbs, shall we say. And it's not set in the modern day, though it's not set in the distant past. It's set in this setting of the late 90s. Why the late 90s? Well, for two reasons. Um, the first was that I wanted to write about Las Vegas um, basically before the the real advent of uh, facial recognition software that they, the um, casinos started to use after 9-11 to try to catch bad guys that were coming in to... Um, into their uh, into their midst, but also because 1998-1999 in Las Vegas was a time when the mafia was really starting to struggle in town. Even though at the same time, um, seemingly the the best person to have in power was in power. So Oscar Goodman, who was elected mayor in 1999, had been the lawyer for the mob forever and was elected mayor in 1999 for the city. And that started that whole renaissance of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, that whole mob ethos, basically, that overtook Vegas basically from 1999 onward. And so I wanted to examine that period of time. Um, and, and also when the, the dream of Las Vegas still seemed like it was possible, they had built all these homes, um, the the city was expanding rapidly, um, all those things seemed to be ripe for both satirization and for examination. And then the final thing was that I had lived in Las Vegas from 1998 to 2000. So I knew the city at that time really well also. And I was going to ask, yeah, your history with Las Vegas. Clearly by 2002, you were already well suited to write a guidebook to it. So how long, how far does your interest in Las Vegas goes back? Not even just your proximity, but when did it become a sort of an intriguing entity to you? Oh, gosh, my entire life. Um, you know, if you grew up in California, Las Vegas um, is always one of those places that you go to. And then, you know, for the first many years of your life, you're stuck at Circus Circus playing video games while you're mom and her boyfriend with the perm are, you know, <laughs> playing pie gal or whatever. Um, so f- from a very early age, I was interested in Las Vegas. Um, but I, to tell you the truth, one of the, the big moments in my life, and I actually wrote about this in, in an essay of mine called um, When They Let Them Bleed, which is in Best American Essays last year, is I remember very vividly watching... Um, a fight on TV that took place in Las Vegas. It was Ray Boom Boom Mancini fighting Duke Kim. And Mancini ended up actually killing Duke Kim in the ring. Um, and it was outside at Caesar's Palace. Um, and I was just sort of fascinated by this entire world that 
people would go to a fight in Las Vegas, sit outside, you know, old Greco-Roman style, <laughs> and and watch a man literally kill another man for sport. Um, and so that happened to me at a very early age, and, and I think it really sparked my interest in the town. And then, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California after moving from Northern California, and so I would go to Vegas a lot when I didn't have any money. Um, I, I was with a group of guys in college who what we would do is if we couldn't make rent or if we couldn't afford the kegger or whatever it might be, we'd get in our car and we'd drive to Vegas with $50 in our pocket and we we were under the mis, uh, misapprehension perhaps <laughs> that we could earn that money uh. because we thought we were geniuses when, of course, we were just drunken frat boys but every now and then you know luck would swing down on us and one of us would win five hundred dollars and we'd make rent and we'd be like yeah we're card sharks we can do this um and so you know i i was fascinated for a very long time with with the city um but my my desire to sort of examine it socially and um criminally as it were i think um that's always been part of the undercurrent of going to Vegas when you go there and you think, Oh man, this is a mob town. I can, I can do what I want here. Um, and I think that's, that's created an interesting subculture in the city of Las Vegas, this idea that, um, you know, you can go there and act like a mobster and there's also occasionally real mobsters still there. That, that has, you know, that, that always piqued my interest. This thing of Las Vegas as a mob town, I mean, it would be, it would be one of the most likely settings for a mob story, you know, pre late sixties, pre Howard Hughes. And then now I'm not sure what the mob status is or how even to describe it today, but it seems like in the setting of Gangsterland in this late nineties of Las Vegas, especially in the suburbs, the mob, it's not looked upon as a likely mob place, isn't it? Well, to some extent, um, you know, the, this was prior to, um, a, a thing called G string or G sting rather, which is when the federal government did these huge sting operations inside the strip clubs of Las Vegas and also the strip clubs of San Diego. Um, and that took place in the early 2000s. Um, because at the time, Las Vegas's mob involvement had really dwindled to, uh, a precious few, which is that they were running several of the local strip clubs purportedly, allegedly. Um, and in many cases, not that purportedly and not that allegedly, when you look at a place like um, the Crazy Horse 2, which I used as the inspiration for the strip club that's uh, in my novel, which I call The Wild Horse, um, the Crazy Horse 2 was, you know, was, was busted by the feds. Um, and it was found that you know most of the people working there um, had some very serious organized crime ties, um, kicking back to the Chicago outfit, um, all kinds of stuff. So it, it's a, a fairly notorious case of the mobs still quasi involvement in, in Las Vegas. Where you see it now, um, you know, is, is harder to parse because as I talk about in the book, everything that the mob used to make money from is legal in Vegas now. Um, the corporations aren't getting muscled by the mafia to run their gaming by and large, um, the strip clubs are being more and more often purchased by large international corporations. Um, and, and so the mafia now has to do the things that they didn't want to do in the past, which was run illegal street drugs, um, and, and do more actual violent acts, particularly not in Las Vegas, which has always been 
an open city and which hasn't had a significant, you know, outward mob presence since the, um, the union problems of the late 1970s. So it, it is a dwindling concern, but it's still also in Las Vegas, a, a driver of tourism. I, I was just there um, on, when I was on my book tour and I got to do a book signing at the coolest place on earth, which is the mob museum. Oh, nice. You know, it was great fun. And I sold a lot of books, so that was nice. But <laughs> I, what I, what I couldn't stop thinking about when I was there was how really weird it was that I was at a tourist attraction that celebrated the worst psychopaths and sociopaths of all time. <laughs> That's a uniquely Las Vegas thing. You, you don't see, um, you don't see in LA a, a, a beautiful museum dedicated to the blood. You do not. You, know? you do not. And, nor the Crips. Nor the Crips. <laughs> nor the Crips or the Mexican Mafia or whoever. Yes. But, you know, it, it's one level removed from, from the same basic problem. So it's still there. It's still glorified, but it's at a much lower level than it was in the past, surely. As you say, the mob has to some extent been pushed into activities that they would have considered beneath them before you know the whatever's illegal now that's kind of what they have to work with and i guess i guess right. i guess the old school mob types see it as a kind of you know this sort of petty savagery that they wouldn't have wanted to engage in before it was sort of a higher class of savagery in the old days but <laughs> tell me, i mean your main character in gangsterland is is a hitman and he's known to be a particularly efficient hitman and in a particularly cold-blooded one to to coin a phrase, but is he, is this man that you send to Vegas under a new identity, uh, is he, is he sort of more suited to this new mob reality, the one where you do have to get your, not hands dirtier, because that's not so much what he does, is, is this main character more suited to the new Vegas mob world than, the, say, the older types, the older school types? Well, I think he, he is in, in a, a very specific way, which is that he has begun to understand that he has to be a businessman. And, and, and to succeed in this world, he has to change the way he did things. And this is, I mean, this is generally true for the mafia everywhere, which is that they stopped being leg breakers and now are into cybercrime. Um, they're, they're probably the ones who hacked Sony. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think he, he recognizes that he's a dinosaur. And, and that guys like him aren't going to exist much anymore. And I think there's a, there's a point late in the book where he says, he's speaking to um, the rabbi that he's working for, which is just a weird sentence to say, incidentally. Sure, until we explain uh, more of the, the context. The to, and uh, where he says, you know, there's not much time left for people like me. And, and I think that's true, the, because the, the mafia now or organized crime in, in any of its guises, be it the, the Russian mafia or the Chinese triads or whomever, they're, make, they're making their money on a computer screen. They're not making it in front of somebody. Um, and as he is realizing how little he wants to continue killing people, um, I think that natural spiritual evolution that he's having plays a role in in the changing world of the mafia that he's in. So, and also the, the, the business that he gets into in Las Vegas, which is both running a synagogue, but also running a cemetery um, where he realizes that the, the, the true money isn't in breaking legs for $20,000. It's in keeping secrets buried forever um, that it, it becomes a, a far less risky proposition for him. Now, this guy, he, he, as a hitman, he he accidentally or deliberately or he he 
circumstances lead him to kill a few uh, federal agents in Chicago, and he is shipped off to Las Vegas under the identity of a rabbi. He has to become the sort of town youth rabbi in, in Summerlin. Now, when when did when did that concept occur to you? The idea that the idea that not just a hitman could be given a new identity, but that he might be given uh, the identity of a rabbi. I mean, I think about. It makes me think of, for some reason, that Clint Eastwood movie from the early 80s where he just sort of walks into Russia and steals that secret plane. It's so, because the plan is so audacious, it's so unthinkable that it works just on that level. So when did this occur to you that he, this is a guise that, uh, that, that he could go under? Well, I wrote a short story called Mitzvah that was in um, Las Vegas Noir, which is one of those city noir anthologies that Akashi Books puts out. And they had asked me to, to write something about Summerlin, which is where I had lived when I lived in Las Vegas. And, you know, I sort of hemmed and hawed for several days trying to figure out what the hell I was going to write about Summerlin. You specifically said which not is, Vegas, not the Strip, not downtown, not the Glitter Gulch. you got to write about this right, suburb. Right. i got to write about the suburb that I lived in. Um, and, you know, the, the most fascinating thing that happened to me on a daily basis living there was trying to figure out what mix-in I wanted, <laughs> Coldstone. So it wasn't, it wasn't terribly rife for organized crime. Um, but what I remembered at the time uh, when I wrote this short story was that there was this huge, sprawling Jewish center that had been built um, not far from the condo we were living in. And I would drive by it, and I'd see how beautiful it was. And I, I sort of have a natural inclination inclination to not trust organized religion all that mm. much um be it Ju judaism or catholicism or you know if you believe in the spaghetti monster <laughs> um I, I don't i just don't trust all that much um but so i was i was sort of thinking about that um you know that oh maybe there's there's some sort of scam i could run inside of a out of a synagogue and then I was here where I live now in, in Palm Springs, and I was driving to the airport for some reason, and I was stopped at a stoplight, and there's this old Native American cemetery not near from the, not far from the airport. And I was just sitting there, and I was staring at it, and you know, I'm sort of possessed by the idea of getting away with murder, which you know probably doesn't make my wife all that happy. Um, but I was sitting there, and I was looking at the cemetery, and this thought crossed my mind, which was that man, if you really want to get away with murder, you should kill someone, put them in a, a casket and bury them in an old cemetery that no one uses anymore. Mm. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, as happens, the magical process of being a writer, I sat there at the stoplight and all of a sudden it was there. Here's a great scam. I could run out of this synagogue. <laughs> what if I attach a cemetery to it? Okay, so I've attached a cemetery to a synagogue. Who would be the person that would run this scam of running the bodies. Oh, well, it'd have to be the rabbi. Well, how would a rabbi become this person? Well, he'd have to be in hiding. Oh, right. So why would he be in hiding? Well, maybe the mob. And so this is all a process which took me about, I don't know, 45 seconds <laughs> while sitting at the stoplight. And then it was all right there in front of me. And I was able to write the short story mitzvah. And as soon as I was done writing the short story, um, which in effect covers the last day on the job for um, for the hitman Sal Cooper team, who's become the rabbi David Cohen. Um, I realized, oh man, I, I can write. I could write about this guy for the next twenty years of my life if I wanted to to get to this point. Um, and so it took me a couple of years because I had other books under contract I needed to write. But 
eventually I, I sat down to start writing um, the book that would be Gangsterland in 2011. And I just started to write it from the beginning. How would this hitman end up becoming a rabbi? What would be the process by which he'd need to get to Las Vegas and escape? And it was, you know, all right there in the course of two years of sleepless nights. <laughs> As I wrote the book. As uh, Sal Cupertine becomes the Rabbi David Cohen, he's he's got to do a lot of preparation. He has this legendary memory as well. He can memorize all of the holy books he needs to memorize, or at least all of what he needs to bring up in conversation with the community, augmented by Bruce Springsteen lyrics and that sort of thing. <laughs> but it, it gave me questions about the, the Jewish community in Las Vegas. I mean, I... I know there is one. I was just in Las Vegas for the first time ever recently writing some articles about the place. And the background reading I was doing, uh, they, they made a big point. These books always made a big point of emphasizing how many New Yorkers specifically are in Las Vegas, as if there had been some mass exodus of just generally New Yorkers to Las Vegas. And in the book, you have, you have uh, Sal turned David, the rabbi. Uh, talking specifically to, talking to one lady, I think, who is Jewish and from New York, and he, he thinks to himself how these are, these people are the most difficult. These are the ones that really put me to the test, my sort of fake Judaism. So is, is this a real thing? It's sort of a, a lot of New York Jews have come to Las Vegas? Yeah, there's a lot of Jews in general in Vegas. Um, I think it's one of the largest Jewish populations and it's growing every day. Um, well, I mean, it grows. Now why, why is it growing so much? Oh, you know. Jews like to gather around each other. <laughs> I see. Like anybody, like anybody who forms a community yeah. elsewhere, you know, it happens. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a resort town, and where there's golf, and where there are delis, and where there is nice weather, <laughs> and where there is gambling, there will be Jews. Um, ah, I see. So, That's how it works. Uh, but it, it's it's one of the largest on the West Coast. It's one of the largest in America. But the 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 diaspora of American Jews to Las Vegas. Um, it's been going on um, since the beginning, since Bugsy Siegel. Uh, so Jews have always been um, attracted to Las Vegas for whatever reason. I, I, I think also the, the cost of living actually is very inexpensive in Las Vegas. Um, so there's that. that um, but, you know, it, it's a good place to retire to if you're into doing such things as playing blackjack all day and and gambling and, um, you know, and kibitzing about the past. It's a good place to be. There's also a, a very large reform and Orthodox community there. There's lots of temples. Um, and there's all of those giant retirement communities. There's the Sun Cities. So, it, you know, there was a period of time, and it's actually the period of time that um, I, I'm writing about, which is when Las Vegas tried to rebrand itself as, as a place for families and a place for, you know, for leisure enjoyment that was not gambling and strippers. So you have to remember that before the the slogan was what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, the slogan was Vegas is for families. Mm, uh, right. And Easy to forget about that. Yeah. They, they've done a very effective job of, of branding their city. Um, and so it's it's always been an important part of, of American Jewelry to be in Las Vegas, um, and, the, and you know the other side of it is, is you know, when you retire, your choices are Boca, uh, Palm Springs, where I live now, Las <laughs> Vegas, um, or the assisted care place in you know whatever town you happen to be living in. Um, right. But it, it, the the thing that I joked about before about Jews finding Jews is actually quite true, um, which is that. The, the cities with the largest Jewish population have the perception of being 
friendly for Jews, for being good for Jews. And, you know, it's not something I used to think about. Um, but it's something that I think about now, perhaps as I get older and more Jewish <laughs> about, um, you know, you want to surround yourself with, um, with the, the sort of shared culture that you have sometimes. And maybe in Boise, Idaho, you're, you know, you're, you're in a retirement village surrounded by people who went to communion and, and you have no ability to, um, to, to react to that. And so I, I think there's, there's something to that. I'm sure that there's a good sociologist out there who has figured it all out. <laughs> no doubt. They've documented this thoroughly, but this is a, it's a shared culture that, that has long existed. And it's one that you drop your mafia hitman, Sal Cupertine into as a rabbi. Of course, I, I, I emphasize as a rabbi, as David Cohn. And he, I mean, I've, I've heard this about writing novels set in subcultures that you always need a character who is sort of the dummy, right. who doesn't know what's going on and who has to learn so that the reader can learn. And this is the challenge that you give, that you give this protagonist. And what was it like then? What was the, what was the appeal of, of putting a sort of dummy into Judaism, you know, of, of, of throwing all, all this huge history of holy texts and traditions and practices at this guy who really doesn't know anything about anything but killing people? Well, it was twofold. Um, one is that I, I knew that I wanted to have him have a spiritual awakening, um, that that was an important part of the book was to have someone who'd never experienced Judaism at least start to understand the philosophy of it. Um, and, and so that was an important aspect for, for me. But the other side of it as a writer is that, quite frankly, I was a, I'm, I'm a pretty bad Jew. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, um, I like my bacon. Um, I like my... Uh, I like I like my Christmas. I'm, I'm sitting in my house right now with with a view of my Christmas tree. I mean, I, I don't I don't uh, have any sense of the religion that goes along with my Christmas tree, but I, I certainly have one. Right. Um, but I wanted I wanted that experience of a person learning something new and it changing the way he thought. And, and the fact is also is that when I was writing this book, what I realized was that I I too had to read all the same books that he was reading. And, oh, and I, because in order to pull it off, I, I had to know this stuff. And also for the very fact that I knew at some point I was going to be interviewed and people would ask me about Judaism. And if I just said, Hey man, I love the lot keys and I love the Kugel, um, <laughs> it would not make for a very compelling conversation. Um, but what I found is that the holy Jewish texts have um, a lot of interesting fucked up things in them. Pardon my language. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and they also talk about, you know, just the, the basic issues of man that we've all struggled with since the beginning. And, you know, this idea of family and of faith and of loyalty. Um, and I thought those would be things that a character like Sal Cupertine, as he evolved into Rabbi Cohen, would would find some truth in. Um, and so it was, it was a, a triple tiered challenge, but the, the largest issue was that I wanted to show that people will believe someone who says they are a rabbi, even if they aren't a rabbi, um, no reason to doubt them, no reason to doubt them. And, and I, I think that's, 
it's not necessarily a condemnation on organized religion, but it's a condemnation on power that the, um, you know, the, the essence of power is that we, we tend to fall in line because that person seems to know what they're doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is horrifying. Um, but you know, that's how we got George Bush. <laughs> there's that, there's that parallel, but there's another parallel that readers will of course draw whenever they read the novel is the parallel between the organizational structure of a religion who follows who and organized crime. I mean, organized crime, right. organized religion, they both have organized in the, in the name, you know, it's, the work is halfway, halfway done for us there. But I want to know how many, what, what, what is a genuinely interesting parallel to you between the way the mafia works and the way a sort of a church, a church meaning a whole religious structure works? I mean, there's a certain sense that, well, this is what fascinates me most about it, first of all, is that the, the characters, the mafia characters in Gangsterland, they will often or sometimes reference how weary they are of the tropes that the general public picks up from, you know, the Godfather or those sorts of things. And, They'll talk a bit about to what extent those are real and usually, you know, more unreal than real. What is what is sort of the godfather of Judaism? What are what are non-Jews <laughs> picking up about Judaism that isn't really true or kind of true? Or what's what's making the popular myth of Judaism? I guess I might ask. Well, I think the popular myth of Judaism is is probably pretty close to the truth. Oh, really? There's not so many fake <laughs> bits and pieces people latch onto. Well, it, you know, I think it, it, it depends. You know, for for someone like me who is culturally Jewish but not religiously Jewish, um, you know, the, the, the tropes of the guilt <laughs> ah. and um, <laughs> the, the nebbishness and... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the basically the Woody Allen before um, he became the pariah of, of the world. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, of what, course. What, what he has put out there. But, you know, I think um, I think the idea has changed. You know, pre-World War II, there was an idea of what Jewish culture was. And then post-World War II, there is a different idea. So, you know, there's there is the... And I, I think I talk about this a bit in the book. You know, there, there's this idea now that you mess with the Jews, you mess with all of them, that they're not going to sit down and take it. Um, and I think that that was, you, you know, it's a cliche from the Holocaust. But the fact of the matter is that someone came in and killed six million Jews. Um, but it's also the the legacy of Judaism and persecution of Judaism since the literal beginning of time um, that they didn't often take up arms. Um, but the fact of the matter is what the Talmud says. And, um, what I mentioned in the book at one point is that it says, if a man comes to kill you, wake up early and kill him first. Right. Um, and I think you see that now, um, you know, with, uh, the state of Israel, um, where they are not waiting for someone to come mess with them. They're going to react and react strongly, um, or with the efficiency of Mossad, um, you know, there, there is, there is the very clear perception now, at least as it relates to the Israeli state that, um, they are not people you want to mess with <laughs> and right. they will, they will exact a, a significant toll in response. Um, and that's something that I wanted to talk about in the book and, and which I think I, I did, but I think the, the larger, cultural mores of the Jewish faith um, 
are more difficult to parse as it relates to cliche because you know the the cliche the cliches end up veering very closely into anti-Semitism and all that stuff. Uh, of course, um, but I I wanted to. I wanted to get out very early in the book, and I think it's on page five or something that, um, you know, the Jews own the world banks and control the liberal <laughs> media and, you know, all that stuff. Um, you, know, you know, several years ago, I wrote a column for um, a online magazine called Juicy, um, J-E-W-C-Y, where they had me go out and um, explore mysteries of the Jewish faith. But but weird ones, basically. And, you know, they had me going to find out, does circumcision hurt? As though that's a question right. anyone was befuddled by. <laughs> Cutting skin off your penis, that hurts. No doubt. No doubt. Um, <laughs> anyone who's ever had a zipper and is a male <laughs> understands that this is a truism. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, w- one of the things I always wanted to do was find out if the Jews actually own the liberal media and run the the world banks. But it was... Where uh, do you start on those questions? Like if you... Do the Jews own the liberal media? (laughs) Right. It's hard to Google. You're not asking Jeeves. That's for sure. Right. But I mean, what... I wonder, more my question about that is not so much how do you start, but what is definitive proof that Jews own the liberal media? Is it that there's like a lot of Jewish people, like Jewish surnames at the top yeah. of the org chart or what that, is it? Yeah, that's that's the problem. I mean, I, I think I think that's the inherent problem of, of if they own it, do they run it? You know, I right. mean, <laughs> well, this is like editors? <laughs> Yeah, you, you wonder because it's the same thing. Like, I now that you bring it up, I mean, this this sense of like the the industries the Jews supposedly own, the industries the mafia supposedly runs. Right. These are things people talk about all the time and very offhandedly usually. And in for most of these conversations where somebody brings up a supposedly Jewish industry or a supposedly mafia one, they don't care whether the Jews or the mafia run these industries. It's just kind of a a, a novelty or a factoid to bring up, but it's they they sort of discuss them in the same way. Like, isn't isn't exactly. this an interesting thing that a group runs something? But I I really unless you really are an anti semite or you I don't know if the, there's even a word for anti Italian American, but uh, you know unless you're really <laughs> anti mobite par- unless you're paranoid about the mob and there aren't that right. many people. I mean people people in general don't. It doesn't really bother them that these that these groups might run these industries and it sounds even paranoid to say to even say oh well the jews run this and the mafia runs this but people are intrigued by that but they're not really it's not really a bothersome fact to them right well i I think that's part of what i was trying to explore is what what do the jews run what does the mafia run what does organized uh government run what does what does the fbi control um what does government control who's listening to what and I think there is this perception of, of all of these things. I mean, you, you go to Las Vegas now and you go and gamble at a casino and the pit boss looks like a guy who might break your kneecaps. But the pit boss is employed by MGM right. and, um, you know, has been vetted through HR. The odds of him taking you downstairs and breaking your kneecaps are pretty slim. Um, you know, he's just a guy in a really bad suit, um, you know, who's, who's dressing a part. And I think that's, that's the thing about Las Vegas, um, that feeds into this culture of organized crime is that the people still dress the part, even when they are, um, employed by multinational corporations and have been vetted by, 
um, the Nevada Gaming Council for their jobs and all that stuff. The practices are vestigial, but they're they're, they're exactly they they still need to wear the black suit with the white tie, and <laughs> I th- I think that's you know it's. It's part of the the culture, certainly, but it's also part of the imagination of the person in that job, that they want to have the appearance of X. Um, and so, you know, that's that's part of this larger criminal ethos that, you know, I, I was fascinated by in writing the book in the first place, which is that most of the criminals or most of the people that we think are the people in charge or running things or running the conspiracy or whatever – are people who go home and they take a shower and they sit on their couch and they watch HGTV just like the rest of us. <laughs> right. It's a little odd to think about, to even contemplate the, the, the fact of, you know, if, if somebody's really a criminal, they want to minimize the appearance of criminality, right. don't they? Or in <laughs> right. fact, you have a character in Gangsterland who, in order to, in order to draw attention away from his mafia ties, he appears on TV in the, in the capacity of he's owning his car dealership, dressed as a mobster, playing up the mobster act. And right. that's telling, it's telling right there, isn't it, that he uses that to not seem like a mobster. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the, um, <laughs> one of the joys of writing the book was that, the playing with these stereotypes, um, playing with the idea that if you say that you're a gangster, then everyone knows that you're not. The 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 interesting, the mo- I think the most interesting thing. I, I want to base this question on one of the most interesting things I found in your acknowledgments. What what role did AskMoses.com have in this book? <laughs> Well, AskMoses.com is a, a fantastic website. Uh, it, in fact, if AskMoses.com would like to sponsor the writing of the sequel to Gangsterland, they should contact me uh, tonight, if, if at all possible. Um, the great thing about AskMoses.com is that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can go on to AskMoses.com and talk to a rabbi. You can ask the rabbi whatever liturgical question you want or whatever ethical question you want or moral question you want. And somewhere in the world, um, that rabbi is answering your question. And in real time, you, you get to chat with them. And so, you know, I'd be, I'd be working on my book and I'd wonder, oh God, I, I haven't found anything in the Talmud or the Midrash or the Torah or any of these thousands of books on Jewish intellectualism on is gambling on the Super Bowl bad? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I get online and I just say, hey, I'm having a real moral quandary. I, I'm thinking about putting $100 on the Super Bowl. Is there anything specifically that says I shouldn't do this? And, you know, then I would get to have a long philosophical discussion online, as it were, with a rabbi. Um and part of it for me also was just to sort of understand when I'd ask, and sometimes I'd ask crazy, stupid questions just to. How can you to, resist? Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't. And, you know, three o'clock in the morning, I'm, I'm hopped up on hot cocoa and murder <laughs> fiction. And I've got a rabbi at my fingertips. You know, God knows what I'm going to do. Literally. And so um, anybody can just go, go on there go, yeah. and, and ask a question. They, and, and a rabbi responds like pretty quickly. Yeah, in real time. Wow. The future is now. Yeah, it really is. Um, So I I would also just go on there and ask questions about things I didn't understand in the Talmud or in the Midrash and and try to find um, 
the logic of of the rabbi, which is was helpful to me in, in sort of figuring out how to write character as well. Um, so it, it's a very good resource, and um, you know some things they say. You know, sometimes they say, "Well, you know, all will be revealed." Oh, I see. That's <laughs> that's the final the final answer if you really get down to it. Yeah, the, that's the problem. Is if you ask them what happens to us when we die, you know, they have they have the, the text to refer back to, but they they don't have the actual clinical experience. <laughs> I, I don't know if you were if you were a watcher of The Simpsons and in, in that show's sort of golden age in the '90s, but I, I recall one episode with Krusty the Clown's father, who was a rabbi, and he, somebody comes up to him and asks uh, Rabbi Rabbi Krustovsky, uh, "Should I buy a Chrysler?" And he responds, with, "Could you rephrase that as an ethical question?" To which the guy says, "Oh, is it right to buy a Chrysler?" I mean, I feel like that's the kind of thing Ask Moses is probably doing a lot of, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, a, a fair amount of. Um, now, did you say you were you were writing tool. a book or no 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 I I would just go there with my own deep personal problems I see <laughs> it, it was actually cheaper than therapy <laughs> now tell me how much of how much of the uh, the expertise you put together on Las Vegas to write that guidebook twelve or so years ago were you able to call upon for writing Gangsterland. I mean, it was that was about the same era, a little bit later than Gangsterland takes place, so I, I presume that was a help. But what I want to get a sense of is, what's sort of the, the expiration date of Las Vegas expertise? I mean, do you have to keep going every few years to get a sense of what the place is like now? Because it does seem to, in my own research on Vegas, it seems to go through very, very distinct eras. Yeah, it, it recreates itself pretty pretty vividly, but only a portion of the city does that. Um, ah. You know, the, the Strip recreates itself whenever they decide they need to implode something. Um, yes. But the nice thing about the suburbs, at least as it related to writing about them now, um, and in fact, the, the stuff that I wrote about in that guidebook, is that subsequent to the crash of the economy, everything's still there. <laughs> um, either it's still there in its original form, or it's an empty storefront, or it's you know it's gutted. Um, the, what what the guidebooks did, and I actually wrote two. I wrote one called "Hungry Thirsty Las Vegas," and then I wrote one called "Horny Las Vegas," um, ah. which went through all the strip clubs and sex clubs and, and all that stuff. Um, was it? It really got me intimate with. Um, the various nooks and crannies of the city. So when I lived in Las Vegas, you know, I lived in the one square mile around where I live, just as most of us do. Um, and that one square mile was in Summerlin. So, you know, Summerlin could be anywhere. Summerlin is basically the orange county of Las Vegas. It's just Starbucks, Baja Fresh, Pottery Barn, Starbucks, Baja Fresh, Pottery Barn, you know. Probably a corner, what's that place called? Corner Bakery? Corner Bakery, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's just a thousand of those replicated on, on every city street and then big sprawling golf courses and, um, the suburban sprawl that was Summerlin itself, the, the actual master plan community, all of that stuff is still there and it's an even larger excess now. Um, but I, I've, I've gone back to Las Vegas, um, a lot over the years. Um, I re I went back for a few days, um, as I was writing the book just to refamiliarize myself with some of the spots. Um, but the, the thing about Las Vegas that is evergreen is that, um, they are, a, that it is a city constantly trying to revive its past, that it's, it's mm -hmm. always interested in looking at that glory day. 
Um, and the fact of the matter is the glory day was a violent, awful, um, grift ridden time when criminals ran the city. Um, and you, you, you hear the same thing over and over again about Las Vegas, which is it was better when the mob ran it. Oh, really? Because um, of why? Why do they think it was better? Oh, oh, because, you know, people had some level of respect or you could get things done or uh, whatever, whatever it might be. The, the fact of the matter is, of course, that's not true. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, maybe you could uh, not get arrested as easily. Um, <laughs> but I, I think every place is always better back then, whenever back then was, except maybe... New York in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, potentially so. I would say Los Angeles has also improved since the 70s considerably, but it's yeah, if we rule out the 70s, yeah, then then uh, then you start <laughs> yeah, thinking, it's all, you, this is just grass is greener on the other side except chronologically. Right. right, except for the 70s. Basically yes. the 70s ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> but if we take those out, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a delusion that it's it's I mean, why do we want to if we're in Vegas or anywhere else, why do we want to think it was better before? I mean, that's, that's too, too grand a question to answer, but it's, it's one that, you know, it's one of these, it's one of these elements that human nature never really runs out of, does it? You can always, you can rely on writing characters who thought things were better before because someone's always going to, right? Right. Because the, the thing about our memories is that we tend to wipe out, um, the worst things that, you know, there, there are horrible things that happen to all of us. And maybe that colors a specific time in our lives, but, um, it doesn't then change the romantic notion of, you know, Oh, I wish I could go back to that time and make better changes or better choices because those better choices would have made my life happier in that, in that time period. I mean, recently I went to my old hometown of Walnut Creek, California, um, where I had lived as a, as a kid and I was driving around the city. I was there for a couple of days doing some events. And, um, you know, I got this real sense of melancholy being there and thinking, oh, man, wouldn't it be great to come back here? But the fact of the matter is, when I lived there as a child, my mom was a lunatic. And um, uh, you know, our father was, was you know, had left. And, um, you know, it was a horrible time. I was a sad, you know, messed up little kid. But when you go back to that place as an adult, you look at it and you see, you know, the opportunity to make better on those memories, I think. So, you know, it's you, I, I think that's why they say you can't go home again. <laughs> right. There we have it. Um, that's that's that aphorism. Um, writ true. But as it relates to Las Vegas, um, you know, I, I think. The idea that the mob made it better there, that the culture of the mafia made it better there, is is really just uh, a, looking back at the pictures of the Rat Pack, where everyone wore tuxedos and there there weren't people walking <laughs> around downtown Las Vegas in fanny packs carrying souvenir footballs filled with beer. You know, it was right, exactly. They had the Desert Inn and all that sort of right, thing. You know, different right. vibe, different vibe. Yeah, it was a classier time. People seem to believe, but you know, the fact is that. It may have been a classier time, but um, the games of chance were skewed to the house in even more grand ways than they are now. <laughs> right. Um, that if you if you screwed with the house, you know, some guy named Three Eyed Philly might take you <laughs> up back and you know punch you in the side of the head with a with a hammer. Um, I would much rather 
um, lose money at the Rio and complain about it and just have them tell me I can't come back to their disgusting casino. That's fine. I don't want to go right. back there. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned that you set the book in the late 90s, partially because of the advances in face recognition software that casinos have, well, that they've casinos have started using in the past decade, in the past 15 years. And that's something that the mafia guys in the book, even in this era that you set it in, are talking about. They, they tell uh, Sal turned Rabbi David Cohen that specifically he can't set foot in a casino because that will, even though he's had alt- altering surgery to his jaw and what and he looks very different, he has a beard, it might still get him. So in this era of very, very advanced face recognition software. Does that just suddenly cut your plot off right there? Is was this book unwritable in, in 2014 in terms of setting it in 2014? Um, in a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, the the thing about Las Vegas post 9-11 is that... Um, so post 9-11, they did a tremendous amount of upgrades to security because um, there was the perception, and I don't remember if it was proved out or not, that... The people who flew the planes went and vacationed in Las Vegas first, and then there was all the threats, real or perceived, to the casinos. Um, so the FBI and Homeland Security um, really started focusing on Las Vegas in a, in a very concise way to see if they could catch people coming in and out. And also, it's just a great, um, you know, population finder. Everyone goes to Vegas eventually. Um, Mm. So, yes, I think that there is a a slight problem with trying to write that book in um, in 2014. But that being said, my my plan also is to continue writing this character for several books. Um, You know, I'm I'm working on the sequel now. um, And, you know, I I sold the book to to CBS for a a TV series. So if if I figured television might be slavering over this, I got the sense. Yeah, television loves the tell me if I'm right or wrong, but television loves a guy who has to become another guy, right? Yeah, generally speaking, they that seems to be the big thing, even if that guy's David Hasselhoff, and he has to become a lifeguard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Why do why do they love guys turning into other guys so much? Well, I I think because it, it invariably has a built in conflict. And this is true of of tv or movies or or novels themselves is that if if you have a profound secret you need to keep um you're a wild card you'll do anything to keep that secret um so Mm. so at any rate my you know my my sense was that well i can write these books for a very long time without even getting past 2005 um if i want to um but you know the the larger issue for me is that um, for Rabbi Cohen is that I I want to not to ruin the the plot of the book <laughs> since since <laughs> you should not know whether or not he lives or dies if you're reading the book um, <laughs> is that I I want the walls to close around him and I want it I want his options Actually. to become fewer um, and after nine eleven um, it's going to be more difficult for Rabbi Cohen to travel. Um, it's going to be more difficult for him to do anything. And, and so that's why I said it in the late 1990s. But I also wanted to, to focus on the time period when the FBI still cared about organized crime in America. And subsequent to September 11th, they stopped caring about organized crime in a very fundamental way for a very long time. Um, and so there, there's a lot of factors that, that go into play with that. Um, 
But, you know, I want, I want to talk about the government and religion and the mafia, but I also want to talk about this man and how he wants to get home to his family. And he's a man that the world outside of his immediate mob circles believe is dead. Well, outside of that, that immediate mob circle and his wife and the FBI agent who is pursuing him through the course of the book, almost everyone believes that Sal Cupertine is dead. Right. And that's the way, that's the way the mob wants it to be. But interestingly, I mean, you get, you get to work with a character that people think is dead, but that FBI agent who's following him because he knows on some level this guy isn't dead, uh, Sal Cupertine thinks this FBI agent, Jeff Hopper, is dead. So what's, what's the appeal of having two, two guys presumed dead <laughs> in different ways, both coming to a showdown? I mean, that seems like a real, it's, it's not something you get to do every day in fiction, where there's like two guys whose status of being dead or alive is kind of indeterminate <laughs> to a lot of the people involved, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I actually thought that was sort of a, an amusing thing as I was writing the book. Um, but what I wanted to show was that when people think you're dead, um, that it's a, it's really a lot easier to go about your life. <laughs> <laughs> better, better dead in some ways, more yeah, convenient that, to be. Um, the, the thing with Rabbi Cohen thinking that the FBI agent who's pursuing him is dead is that he doesn't have any fear. He doesn't think that anyone is looking for him. And so he is able to go about his business in Las Vegas in, in an entirely different way. For Jeff Hopper, the FBI agent, looking for Sal Cupertine, that everyone thinks he's dead is such a huge bone of contention for him because he knows that it's that it's not true, um, that the evidence does not suggest that it's true. Um, and it becomes a, a rallying point for him about the ineptitude of the FBI and their willingness to um, basically make deals with criminals so that they all can stay in business. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think also the, the sense that two guys who other people believe are dead are looking for one another, um, when they do finally meet up uh, at some point, um, what happens between them has to be both dramatic, but also um, cathartic in a way that they both know that they think they're dead um, and, and that something has to happen. And it can't just be as simple as one person saying, I've got you. And the other person saying, yep, you got me. Um, that, <laughs> yeah. that something both physical and spiritual has to happen between them. And now speaking of the, the spiritual because, of course, Sal Cooperdine has to become Rabbi David Cohen. He's got to do all the studying. He's, he's got to do the actual job of a rabbi. And he has an advantage in this in some sense, because as we mentioned very briefly, he has this super memory that his uh, sort of mob colleagues have, have dubbed him Rain Man because of. It's got him that nickname. So he can't memorize these long or long sections of these religious texts that a lot of people can't even get through, it seems like. He even, he's, with certain ones he even has trouble with, but he can memorize a lot and he can internalize at least the letter of the law uh, regarding Judaism. So what, what is, what kind of an interest do you have in the sort of boundary between, how to put it, uh, how much this character can learn versus how much he can persist in not believing? Is there a direct re relationship between how much he crams and how much he sort of 
is able to buy into, or is this guy is this guy a skeptic uh, through um, and through? I, I think he is a skeptic at first, but by the time the book is concluded, um, he's had a spiritual awakening of a kind. Um, and maybe he's not a Jew, but maybe he understands Jews, um, and he understands that there is something larger than himself. Um, and so at first, you know, he's cramming to get the information in just so he can pull it off. And, but then uh, as the book progresses, I won't, I won't give away the, the big scene where he, it reveals what he knows, but, um, <laughs> he, you know, I, I think you're seeing a subtle shift in the character's philosophy on life and philosophy on death. And that's a direct relation to what he is reading and what he is learning. Very early on in the book, um, Rabbi Kales asks him, you know, do you memorize or do you believe? And, you know, he says basically he gets what he gets and he memorizes what he memorizes. But it becomes a more profound question the longer he's in it because essentially it's his job and he has to know these things. But he's not above doing what we all do, um, which is, you know, substituting what he knows for what he thinks he knows or what other people will think he knows. Um, <laughs> and, and so he at one point reveals that with certain Jews, it's just easier for him to quote Bruce Springsteen or Neil Young um, because, <laughs> right. you know, if you say, is a dream a lie if it doesn't come true or is it something worse? Well, that's a line from The River by Bruce Springsteen, but <laughs> it could certainly come from a holy text. Right. There's a certain overlap there in those two, in that, in that class of observation, yeah, or, shall we or, say. you know, everybody has a hungry heart. You know, if, if you say that, people, people will sure. nod their head and say, oh, yes, everybody does have a hungry heart. Because I think what we... <laughs> we all draw from the same yeah, well, I guess. And I think, you know, when you, when you go to someone with a problem, and this is true if you go to a priest or a rabbi or, or a therapist, um, invariably, the that person doesn't have the answer. What that person does is provide you a pathway to finding your own answer. Um, or they tell you that you're not crazy. Or, you know, they, they say... <laughs> You're not the first person to have felt this. Um, and I think that's what the reading of the religious text does for Rabbi Cohen, um, is finding out that the problems he has in uh, the end of the 20th century are very similar to the problems Jews had in the 13th century, makes him understand that he's not alone in the world. Um, and I think that's, mm -hmm. that's the one thing about religion that I've always believed to be the healthy part, which is that it lets you know that you're not the only person, um, that there are other people who share what you feel. It doesn't mean I necessarily agree with what that religion then tells you, um, but I think that sense of community, that sense of belonging to something larger than yourself, it's part of what makes us human. Um, it's part of what makes us different than um, a llama. You know, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think course. a llama often walks around pondering what the llamas in um, the other parts of the world are going through at that time. But <laughs> we're incapable, unless we're sociopaths, of, of not feeling some sense of empathy for the human condition um, when we're faced with it. And, and so that's, that's part of what that nexus between memorization and belief has done for, for Rabbi Cohen.
Mm, and the question will, I'm sure, arise over the next books you write about him is what's what increasingly little will make him not a rabbi, right? The more he knows, the more he does his job. It's the, the line between him and a real rabbi. It's going to become thinner and thinner, is it not? Yeah, that's that's the plan. <laughs> not to, not to, not to pre-spoil pre 500 pages of, of text I haven't written. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think if you spend your life pretending to be something and you're able to pull it off, well, that's that's who you are at some point. Um, I actually I had a conversation recently with uh, I was on another show um, where I spoke with a rabbi who had spent his first thirty years of his life as a con man and as a grifter, okay. and he found Judaism in prison, and now is a, a rabbi at a, at a synagogue in um, in Los Angeles. And I asked him you know, what part of the grifter still lives in the rabbi? Do you use the same skills every day? And he said, of course. You know, oh. it's, when, when you're in the business of convincing someone to believe, it doesn't mean you're convincing them to believe in something bad. It doesn't believe that you're convincing them to take a phony mortgage. Um, in his case, he's, he's convincing people to, to believe in the faith of Judaism. Um, and and to maintain that faith, and you know the the con man and and the preacher um, or the rabbi depend on charm and persuasion and the ability to make someone feel like they can put their life in that person's hands and that life will be different because of it. Um, and so that's that's what I'm going to continue to pursue as I write about this character. Well, also periodically shooting motherfuckers in the back of the head. <laughs> of course, you can't leave that. That's, I mean, that's, there's a certain crowd that's always going to be back for that. Right, right. But you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by this character. I'm fascinated by um, the duality of, of criminality and religion. Um, but I'm also interested in the length someone will go to get back to the people that they love. And and, and that's, you know, every book I've ever written, other than perhaps the two guidebooks to Las Vegas, in my mind, I've been writing love stories. Um, they shelve them under murder. <laughs> but in, in my mind, I'm writing love stories. <laughs> I've been speaking today with Todd Goldberg, the author of various love stories. The new one is a Gangster Land, the first in what should be a series, what I hope will be a long series of novels following this mafia hitman Sal Cupertine turned the rabbi David Cohn. He's also the host, by the way, in case you want to do some more downloading today, of the Literary Disco podcast. Todd, thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.com and with me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks. <laughs>